Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining On the Defense, the podcast where we explore all things cybersecurity and finance, and often the overlap between those two areas. In this episode, we talk to Dan Draper, who is the founder and CEO of CypherStash, which is a data protection platform based here in Australia. Dan is a very experienced technologist and a filmmaker. So this was a really great conversation, sometimes surprising conversation that covers Dan's views on everything from data privacy to the biggest cybersecurity risks of 2024, to which major blockbuster movie has the biggest lessons for business leaders. So it's a really informative discussion and we're excited for you to listen. Thanks again for tuning in. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for joining us on on the defense today. We're really excited to talk to you about um, some really interesting questions about cybersecurity and data protection. I even have some questions for you about um, movies. <laughs> Looking forward um, to it. So how are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just to start off with, can you tell us your name and uh, and what you do? What's Cypherstash? I'm Dan Draper. Uh, I'm the CEO and founder of Cyphestash. We've been running for about three years. And what we do is protect sensitive data. We provide highly secure, frictionless data protection that works really everywhere sensitive data is stored. And the way that we do that is rather than simply restricting access to the systems where data is stored, we actually protect the data itself directly using uh, what we call searchable encryption technology. And what is that? So encryption technology, encryption really is the most powerful way to protect data. It's it's mm -hmm. like taking an email address or a date of birth or something and jumbling it up in such a way that no one can interpret it. No, no human or even machine can understand what that data is. It uh, becomes completely unintelligible. And the only way to reverse the encryption is by using a key. And so that key is... Uh, very tightly controlled by, you know, whatever what we call identity systems uh, an organization have has. Maybe that's like a, your Microsoft login or your Google suite is it now attached to your key. And then your key is allows you to decrypt only the values, uh, the the information that you're allowed to see. And so when we when we go through that decryption process, it's taking the key and unjumbling the data so that we can now now read it. And what makes encryption so powerful, at, at least in this in this form, is that we can now use it, can use it in a database, can use it in a Salesforce or a Zero, or we can use it in a spreadsheet. And the idea of this universal protection now becomes possible. So data is protected wherever we may end up with sensitive data. Right. Okay. And and so for those of us who don't work in tech or, or kind of do a lot of this in our day-to-day -day jobs. Um, can you explain, you know, where data encryption and data protection sits um, within kind of cybersecurity more generally? Mm. So cybersecurity is, is very broadly uh, the idea of um, ensuring safety of digital infrastructure. So digital infrastructure could be everything from an ATM to your online banking, to uh, your Facebook personal, you know, a Facebook account. And it's, it's ensuring that only the appropriate people are allowed to do appropriate things for that digital infrastructure. It's a very, very broad definition. When we talk about data protection, what we really mean is the cybersecurity as it applies to data specifically. So what data 
are you allowed to view? And what data do you want others from outside your organization or who are not a member of your family, for example, what data do you want them to be able to read? And so that then the related concept is then privacy. So when we think about privacy, it's very tightly coupled with data security. But what we typically mean is uh, when we say privacy is the data protection as it applies to my own personal data. So when I when I think about my own privacy, I'm thinking about the data protection of my data, my information, my personal details, my my home address, my phone number, my even things like my health information or my my transaction history. That's all personal information. And so I if I want to keep that private, it's about my own personal data protection. Where that whole conversation gets a little murky is when we're thinking about organizations that become the custodians of an individual's data, say in a in a finance setting, that's often payment details, uh, address details, contact information, sometimes transaction history. They they can all be considered personal information for an individual, but it's not the individual that has control of that information at a given point in time. It's the organization who is responsible for it, and so that's when data protection and privacy become different things because. The data is not private anymore because the members or organization employees can see that information. So it's not private. But the subtlety and the very important point to make here is that the data must be kept in such a way that only the absolute minimum number of people that need to see that data should be able to see the data. Right? As soon as, as, soon as that organization lets it slip, that more people within the organization can see it than maybe should. Or certainly if it's accessed by some external party, maybe it's a supplier or a vendor or a partner, or in the worst case, an attacker, then clearly that privacy has failed and the data protection has failed. So that's where the sort of these these lines become a little blurry, but they're the sort of lenses that I look at it through. Yeah, right. And you mentioned um suppliers and vendors. And I think what's interesting is sometimes when we talk about data privacy and data protection, a lot of times I think businesses, you know, when you hear this, you're thinking about, oh, how do I protect, you know, my customers or my clients' uh, data? But then there's also the business to business data. And so, you know, it kind of seems like when we hear about these big data breaches, you know, an attacker accessing uh, data that they're not supposed to be accessing, or maybe even a leak. Uh, maybe a, an organization has inadvertently exposed data um, that they didn't intend to. I'm, I'm kind of curious about what the possible implications can be um, when an organization has their sensitive data exposed, whether that's financial data, credentials, et cetera, or even an individual within that organization has their has their information exposed somewhere. Um, what are the possible threats or risks that that are at play there? You know, we hear about, ah, this data has been exposed, but what does that mean, you know, for the jobs of uh, financial professionals, for instance? There's a spectrum, I think, of of potential consequences of data being accessed. When we say a breach, we could mean something as, as sinister as an attack, but we could also just mean quite simply that information has been made visible, likely inadvertently, to somebody who really shouldn't have had access to that. That's not often called a breach, but it is still, it's sort of that, the lightweight breach. <laughs> it's, still, it's still part of the same spectrum of problems. And so starting at that end of the spectrum, 
It could be something as simple as uh, now some marketing agency has your email address and they can they can spam you. It's inconvenient, but it's not dangerous necessarily. It's the very kind of light lightweight end. I, I guess moving along that spectrum, then you've got things like, well, if you're uh, a company that you've given your health information to, as one example, uh, then goes and shares that information with a health insurer, and that affects your premiums or even potentially prevents you from accessing the insurance altogether, then that can be quite damaging to an individual. That's not necessarily a data breach, but that is arguably a violation of privacy. There may not even necessarily be breaking any laws or rules there. It could be in the terms and conditions, but you've got to be careful to confirm uh, who might have access to that data and who might not. As one example on that, um, California recently um, passed uh, a new act, what they're calling the Delete Act, which is a, a, a set of requirements for organizations that are managing data in that way to prevent the sharing of that data with with um, undeclared third parties. So there's there's some you know uh, regulatory precedent precedent starting to see there and and hopefully we'll start to see similar things come through in australia as well moving down the line certainly more sinister uh, consequences of losing data comes into things like identity theft so if you have had your you know your personal information things like your date of birth uh your passport number your medicare number those kinds of things are leaked then that can become very easy for cyber criminals to to use that to you know, take out a credit card in your name, for example. And one thing I often say to people when thinking about this problem is that there are some classes of information that are relatively easy to to change and some you can't change at all. Like as, as an example, you lose your driver's license. Yeah, that's not great and it's a pain, but you can go to the relevant government office in your state and get a new license issued. If your date of birth or your location of birth or anything to do with your uh, your physical body is leaked, like 23andMe, the DNA company recently had a breach. Those kinds of things are impossible, literally impossible to change. So those are the kinds of pieces of information that are, that are actually incredibly sensitive. And so then right down the very end of the spectrum, you have very extreme situations like this idea of swatting. Uh, swatting, if, if um, your listeners haven't heard of this idea before, is the idea that uh, somebody who is often a minority group, often um, somebody that is the target of you know, personal abuse, racial abuse, what have you, if information about that person is leaked online that has been used by certain groups to make false claims about criminal activities that this person is involved in, have a SWAT team sent to their address, and there have been cases that's been in the news over the last few years where somebody who has not been has been shown not to be a um, a criminal or or has been proven innocent of whatever claim has had a SWAT team arrive at their home address and has been shot and killed. So that's like the far extreme, and surely most people will never, thankfully, be a victim of that. But as you can see, the, the risks are wide and varied, and it could be as you know as inconvenient as getting a spam message from some some supplier that you're not interested in, all the way down to threat of death. It's very very uh, nuanced and, and wide. Right, and it sounds like there are a lot of risks and threats, um, you know, to the individual. You know, whether like you said, it's the spam email or it's um, 
thousands of dollars worth of pizza deliveries arriving at their house or, um, you know, identity theft. Um, I'm wondering, are there any specific risks to organizations, for instance? So let's say, hypothetically, the sensitive data, whether it's the organization's um, whether it's their suppliers, whether it's um, an employee, um, let's say sensitive information falls into the hands of an attacker or some malicious actor. What are some of the things that businesses or organizations could be facing as a risk um, when that data ends up, I guess, in the hands of someone sinister? Yeah, certainly. So there's, I guess there's a few different ways to think about it. There's the the regulatory issue, which is sometimes the first that people think about. If the fact that the organization has had a data breach violates some regulatory uh, requirements, some, for example, in Australia, there's the Australian Privacy Principles uh, that's, that's um, managed by the Officer of, Office of the Information Commissioner. If there is a data breach and the company has not notified the OAIC, um, then they can be face consequences of big fines. Um, that's, you know, I, I don't like necessarily thinking about it in those terms. I mean, yes, that's something that organizations can think about, but sometimes it's it's not actually the, the biggest issue. Uh, certainly in, in other jurisdictions like in, in um, the EU or UK, you've got things like GDPR. In the US now, we're starting to see more regulatory requirements, as I mentioned, the Delete Act, and then obviously in California, you've got the CCPA. There's various different regulations that organizations need to be thinking about. But Sometimes the consequences are much more visceral than just getting a fine from a regulator. And the obvious one is uh, loss of customer trust. If you've had a major breach, I mean, you look at Optus as an example, and everyone talks about Optus these days because they were you know, such an archetypal example of this issue. Optus lost 250,000 or so customers to Telstra in the ensuing six months uh, after their breach. And Telstra's mobile revenue was up uh, around 10 or 11%. Having said that, Optus have apparently largely clawed back a lot of that that loss. They they obviously had to, you know, do a lot to 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 cater to that. They had to, you know, do special deals and and lots of beneficial, you know, arrangements for for potential customers in order to attract that business back. But Optus are in some sense unique because they fit into a, a couple of categories which most organizations don't. Optus are part of a duopoly in Australia. If, you've, if you're not with Optus, you're probably with Telstra. Okay, yes, there's Vodafone, but I'm ignoring them because they're a very small player in the, in the uh, telecom, telecommunication space. And so personally, I, I was happy to stick with Optus because I didn't particularly like the alternative. So that's, that's actually not very common. Most organizations are not lucky enough to have a duopoly. And also very large. Optus are a, a large organization. And yes, they, they suffered the consequences of, of revenue, but they were able to work their way through it. What happens in a smaller organization, particularly one that is that doesn't have the size and duopoly benefit, is that that can actually significantly put the, the um, prospects of the business at risk, whether that's because they can't maintain retain customers, they lose customers, they can't attract new ones because these customers are not willing to work with a company that suffered such a breach, they can't attract capital. They can't raise um, investment funds, or maybe an acquisition falls through. Those kinds of those kinds of problems. And while we don't hear about big companies falling over from data breaches very often, very likely because they're big, smaller organizations often do significantly suffer uh, because of a data breach. I think what 
can be really scary to think about is the idea that, let's say, an organization works with you, works with Cypherstash, um, does everything they can to protect their data, their customers' data, and they're very careful. This idea that um, your own security and your own data privacy, even if you take that seriously, if someone else in your supply chain or someone else in your ecosystem isn't taking it seriously, or there's a breach elsewhere, maybe that information, that data can be used against you. Is that a risk that whether individuals or organizations could face where, you know, they're very careful with their data, they take um, every precaution they can? Can data in the wrong hands still be used against an organization or an individual even if the breach happened at a completely different organization, maybe a supplier organization or a a partner organization, um, is that a risk that particularly finance professionals should be thinking about? Absolutely it is. It's a massive risk. And I'll give you a couple of examples. A very simple one is the idea of a breached password. So if if you use a password with one company, one vendor, one site, uh, and that company has a, has a breach. Now the, that password, uh, may be accessible to an attacker. If you happen to have used the same password on another site, then that attacker may be able to do what's called credential stuffing. A credential stuffing is this idea where the attacker will just take a whole set, a whole like list of passwords that they've, they've found and just try them one after another. And they can automate that. And I know we're going to talk about AI later, but AI makes that process even easier. And in fact, we've seen that play out recently. Several of the most more recent breaches uh, that we've seen in the media haven't been like Optus or Medibank or Latitude, some of the big breaches we had over the last couple of years. They've actually been what I think of as secondary breaches. These are the consequences of previous breaches that are now being used in a different way to attack new vendors or new companies. And the most common of those is is what's called credential stuffing, where you're taking passwords from your from a previous breach and trying it to, to uh, using it to an attacker, another, another company. That's unfortunately very common. And the only thing really that, that an individual can do to, to prevent that from happening, well, there's two things really. Don't reuse passwords. That's number one. If you're like me and you can't remember any more than a couple of passwords, then I strongly recommend you, you use uh, what's called a password manager. There's a few different vendors around one password, last pass, dash lane. They're all, they're all pretty similar. You can also enable two-factor authentication. Um, so two-factor authentication where you get sent a text message or you're using one of the, the apps on your phone. They are inconvenient and I hate them just as much as everybody else does, but they are unfortunately a, a really important part of that, that security puzzle. And from a, from an organizational perspective, it's really important that companies are, are enforcing two-factor authentication when it's appropriate. And it almost always is appropriate, by the way. Um, there are very, very few cases. I mean, we don't, we don't force two-factor authentication on uh, new signups for customers, but within the first week or so, we're forcing that, that, that two-factor authentication. So it's, it's one of the most powerful ways to, to prevent issues. There is another category of issues that come as, can come as a consequence of you know, other external breaches, whether that's through a supplier or a vendor or some completely independent company. And that's what we call uh, related data attacks. So this is where an organization may have some information on an individual, but it might not be that useful on its own. Say maybe a handful of transactions or just the date of birth and email address. But then what attackers will often do is they'll they'll use 
data obtained from one breach and then cross-reference it with data obtained from another breach, and they start to build start to build up a much more comprehensive picture of an individual, and that's when things become dangerous. And so I think there's a there's a there's a mindset that's really important to talk about, and something that you know I I think we need to combat, and that is we don't store enough sensitive data on an individual for it to be useful. That may be the case on its own. But when combined with other data sets, can still be incredibly powerful. So I think it's important for organizations to think about the risk of the data that they store on behalf of the customers, even if that on its own is not necessarily sufficient to do damage. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Because um, this past this past year at South by Southwest Sydney, um, there was a you know a, a former hacker uh, turned you know kind of white hat. Uh, had his own uh, security firm, and he was talking about how, um, you know, some people feel like, oh, yeah, some of my information was caught in a data breach. What's the big deal? And he was like, in order to get into your bank account, all I really needed was, let's say, your Spotify account email address. That's all I really needed to then cross-reference um, with other leaked data and to then kind of work from there into every other part of your kind of digital <laughs> footprint and then all the way into like, you know, the crown jewels, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah. so I think that's a really, really good Thank you very much for kind of breaking that down and how that works, because um, I think some people do take that for granted a little bit. Just switching gears slightly, um, I've been wanting to ask you about a conversation that you had with the former head of the United States uh, National Security Agency. So my understanding is that you had a chance to sit down um, with this person, and I'm really curious as to some of the biggest takeaways that you had from that conversation, particularly as they might relate to anybody working in finance or, or leading finance teams. Yeah, absolutely. So Admiral Michael Rogers um, was the former head of the NSA. Um, he worked under Obama and Trump. So he was very bipartisan and, um, and saw both sides, how, how the US operated under both those leaders. It's a very in, insightful individual. And I was fortunate enough to um, be invited to a to a lunch with a handful of other uh, leaders in in cybersecurity as part of the Tech Council's um, cyber working group. And uh, there were about ten of us in in that in that meeting. And uh, there were so many things that that Mike, as he he preferred to be called, which felt very strange. I didn't know whether to salute him or what. <laughs> um, but Mike had some some very interesting insights. And one of the questions that really really stuck with me was. Looking at Australia's history over the last couple of years, we've had very high number of data breaches, as, as we've talked about. Why is it that we've suddenly seemingly become such a, such a target? And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of reasons that Mike was not able to share with me. I can only imagine the, the secrets that he must, must hold. But he said one of the very, very simple reasons is that Australia's aligned ourselves more closely with the US over the last decade or so. The U.S. has always been a, a target, you know, the the world power and, and you know, in some parts of the world, are perhaps a controversial power. It's not how I see the world necessarily, but certainly that, that, is, a, that is a view that, that many, many people across the world hold. And so the U.S. has been a target by criminal gangs, by nation states and, and other operatives. Because Australia has aligned itself more closely with the U.S., by association, we have become a target. But the... The more sobering component of this discussion is not only that we've become a bigger target, but that we're actually significantly underprepared. 
And in fact, the way that Mike described it was that it's it's been like a, a smash and grab. Criminal gangs and, and nation states have seen Australia as a as an easy target because a lot of Australians have just thought over the last few years, well, who would want to attack Australia? Where just little old Aussie, you know, <laughs> who cares, right? And uh, and that's a dangerous mentality. And in fact, I was before I started SafeStash, I was the chief technology officer at a company called Medical Director, and uh, that was I was I was in that role. Um, during the COVID pandemic. And we saw a massive spike in attacks coming out of China on our healthcare systems. And you would be forgiven for thinking why on earth would a Chinese criminal gang attack a general practitioner in Australia? Well, the answer is very simple. They were looking for medical data that might support the research that they were doing on a COVID vaccine because the COVID vaccine at that time was an incredibly important strategic advantage in a geopolitical context. So that's why they were making those attacks. And so there are, there are often really important reasons that these gangs or, or nation states are attacking countries like Australia. And in a financial context, a context the, the answer is very simple. Uh, criminal gangs need funding. They need money to survive. And so, uh, and, 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 and particularly when there's a political agenda associated with that, then, you know, it's funding, funding, uh, terrorist activities or, or funding other, other illegal activities that these, these, uh, groups may be trying to pull off. And so to do that, they, they attack financial organizations. They attack individuals. They steal their money. They use ransomware attacks to, to get large sums of money transferred them, transferred to them via Bitcoin. There's, there's lots of ways that those attacks can play out, but really it just comes down to them needing to make money. That's how they, they generate income. Right. Okay. And that's, I think, um, what you described of, you know, kind of the Australian mentality of like, oh, well, who would, who would want to come after us? Like, (laughs) I think that definitely has kind of created, um, conditions where um, Australia is a, quite a popular target, um, even for just financially motivated cybercrime. And so that means that I think for a while, you know, uh, organizations specifically, you know, can't change the entire mentality and cybersecurity posture of an entire nation. But it does mean that maybe kind of change has to start within. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in- circumstances and, and kind of taking that more seriously on an organizational level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the other thing is that it doesn't matter whether you're Australian or American or Indian or Sri Lankan or Chinese, we're all connected to the same internet. And once upon a time before, even even in, in the internet's infancy when, when connectivity was not as good and there were not as many people that had access to, to the internet or internet performance was poor, it was this world where you had the, the the geographic protection. You had the you had the protection of distance. The physical location mattered. It doesn't anymore. It really doesn't. Even even most of the world's um, you know poorer nations, developing nations, have very high levels of internet connectivity now. And certainly certainly um, uh, an, a motivated individual can can pretty easily get connected. And so we need to think about the threats that are coming from anywhere on the planet. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. And so that's very, very different mentality to thinking about protecting your home in a nice suburb where the crime rate is low. You know, you can have fairly modest 
security protections in that landscape and be quite safe. The internet is does not have that luxury. You are connected to literally everybody on the planet. Right. And that connectivity, um, while offering, you know, can be a huge risk. I think it's also makes things more delicate and interconnected considering the connectivity is kind of the lifeblood that, you know, um, even if somebody is from a low income background, that's still um, important for um, all different kinds of existing in the world as it is currently. Um, And so it creates this kind of delicate, like we're both at greater risk and just kind of more vulnerable to each other in general. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I think that's a good opportunity then for me to ask my next question, which is, you know, we're kind of here at the very beginning of 2024. We've got a lot of, there's a lot of talk about generative AI. There's a lot of um, you know, the the federal government has just released um, Australia's national cybersecurity strategy for the next several years. Um, so there's there is a focus on security. Um, there's a lot of talk about AI, but I'm curious um, what your perspective is uh, for this coming year. Like, wh- what's your biggest cybersecurity concern for 2024? What worries you? I think most people would expect me to say AI. Um, it, AI is certainly a concern, but it's probably not my major concern. My major concern is the same that it has been in 2023, which, which is quite simply that organizations that don't take security seriously enough will be at risk. And yes, the, the, the advancement of generative AI accelerates some of those threats. And certainly the kinds of attacks that would have to have been, you know, previously managed by an individual very manually in some cases can now be automated and uh, more sophisticated. You get that text message from an unknown number at 3 a.m. asking you to click a link, then that was probably simply sent at that time because that happened to be when somebody on the other side of the world was awake. But if you have an AI that's automatically generating these things and then tweaking how it does it based on how effective the attacks are, they can do it any time of day. Those kinds of attacks are going to become much more sophisticated. Certainly we will see that uh, and are already starting to see that. Equally, the defensive technologies are becoming more sophisticated as well. So defensive technologies are incorporating AI, um, threat detection technologies, fraud detection technologies. So on that level, there is a little bit of an arms race. But really, the, the, the number one concern for me is still the attitudes of individuals, particularly those working in positions within organizations where they can make a difference. Uh, they've, got to, they've got to start thinking about data security and, and cybersecurity more broadly as a core tenant of how they operate. Like historically, we've often thought about profits, obviously, is, is, a, is a number one thing that, that most businesses think about, but, uh, you know, team engagement and um, product reliability and uh, ease of use, all of those kinds of things are really important to, to how a business operates. But increasingly, we need to see cybersecurity elevated to, the, to that same level. It needs to be a core principle of any organization that manages any kind of sensitive data. And the fact that that doesn't happen enough or to the extent required is what gives me concern. Yeah, that makes sense because I feel like when we look at generative AI and the risks that it poses, a lot of times the the big risks are that it's going to amplify the threats that already exist and the tactics that have already been in use for um, years or even decades in some instances. But like you said, um, if we are seeing persistent 
attitudes or mentalities where this isn't a priority, then it doesn't matter how the technology evolves. That's always going to be a vulnerability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, people are people are still the biggest vulnerability in any organization, unfortunately, and it's attitudes that are sometimes the hardest things to change. So, as much as I'm about technology, it, it's actually cybersecurity is ultimately about a people is is a, ultimately a people problem. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I can't remember the statistic, but I think it's something like 90% of cybersecurity incidents are traced back to a human making a mistake somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't remember the exact number either, but um, uh, Verizon released a report every year that, that goes into a lot of detail about uh, how breaches are playing out. And, and you're right, they're, they're, they are predominantly due to human factors. And that's either because of a, a human error, whether that's uh, somebody working in technology and making a, you know, a configuration or system uh, mistake. Or if it's just somebody that's, you know, accidentally been uh, clicked a link that they shouldn't have, that's a very common one, of course. And then, of course, you've got you've also got the problem of malicious insiders, where a very disgruntled employee perhaps might see an opportunity to make some money or to deface the company that they've grown to dislike. Uh, those kinds of problems, sadly, are, are very real as well. Uh, and in fact, there's there's a there's a common attack that has started to emerge over the last few years where Attackers will go and find organizations that have a very low uh, engagement score. So, for example, Glassdoor shares employee engagement, and then they go and find employees that are not happy in their job, and they say, don't quit. We'll pay you to not quit, but we want you to give us access to the systems that, that you have access to. So that's a, that's a deeply alarming um, scenario. And so, you know, team engagement actually and, and how happy your employees are can have a direct impact on cybersecurity, as it turns out. But also, so can the amount of data that an individual within a team has access to. And the over access problem is a huge one as well. So, any organization that's thinking about how to protect themselves must start with well, who's got access to what data? How much access do they have? And do they need access to that data to do, to do their job? How can we make sure that everyone is working on a, on the basis of needs to know? They only they only have access to what they need to know. That's how we reduce risk. Yeah, that's um I think kind of underscores your point about um, the importance of kind of prioritizing cybersecurity and data protection just as an attitude because you've just kind of touched on a few different ways in which, for instance. HR and employee satisfaction become cybersecurity risks, um, as well as, you know, even things as, as you know, seemingly mundane as, uh, you know, process and um, user access uh, permissions and things like that suddenly become, you know, really, really big vulnerabilities or big risks um, for, you know, uh, financial health, um, reputation, uh, security, all that sort of thing. Um, so I think that kind of goes back to what you, you mentioned about people needing to have the attitude that this is a priority and that this kind of touches every part of the business. And so on that note, I've been wanting to ask you, um, <laughs> you wrote last year um, a really interesting LinkedIn article um, using uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, great movie. Uh, you were using that to kind of explore um, what you saw uh, happening with uh, data protection approaches, security approaches, and mentality. Um, you kind of used that as a jumping off point to explore what was going on 
um, in those areas. And so I'm very curious, especially with Oscars coming up uh, relatively (laughs) soon. um, I'm curious as to whether or not there were any films from this past year um, or even, you know, the beginning of this year that you felt had any sort of relevance um, to any of the things that we've, we've kind of touched on today. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking about this earlier. You might be um, thinking that I was I would say Oppenheimer and and the nuclear bomb and connecting it to AI or something, but actually no. My answer is Barbie. I saw Barbie and it was an amazing movie. I actually really liked it. Very very clever. That's I I think got an interesting message for for cybersecurity. Believe it or not, if as an organization you're not taking data seriously, data security seriously, you're living in a fantasy world. This other world exists around us that that we don't realize is there. And like Barbie, when she went out into the real world, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but like Barbie, when she went out to the real world, once you appreciate the risk that's out there, there's no going back. You you can't unsee that. <laughs> I'm really stretching the metaphor now, but like as as Barbie came back and realized there are all these problems that she now had to reconcile. I think that's that's the problem that that many businesses will now face once they start to appreciate the cyber risk. They're going to have to find a way to incorporate that into into the way that they were doing things previously in a, in a way that's now sustainable and and uh, and takes into account these threats. Uh, it's a it's a very I, th- I think it's actually an oddly appropriate metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love the idea of comparing, you know, the kind of um, insulated Barbie land kind of fantasy life versus, you know, the organization that says, oh, don't worry, we do security training once a year and, and we make them do a quiz and we're good, we're protected um, and we've we've solved this problem. <laughs> does right. seem a, a bit similar to the idea of, of Barbie land. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> 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 Definitely an interesting response. <laughs> I love that. Well, on that note, probably a good opportunity to just ask you a little bit about you do seem to have an interest in film and and uh, diversity, and you know you've been heading up an organization called Debugging Diversity for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and, and what you do? Yeah, so Debugging Diversity uh, is is essentially a, a documentary. It started out as a as a really just a YouTube video that a friend of mine and I wanted to make. And, uh, you know, looking back on it now, I can see how incredibly naive we were um, about uh, diversity in the technology industry and particularly around this idea that it is a highly male-dominated space. And what are the, what are the, the cultural societal impacts that having a highly male-dominated technology sector has um, so, for example, what what kind of technology are we making? What kind of uh, are the consumers of technology being represented by those who make it? And um, it it ended up being a, a, a far more significant project than I ever imagined. Of what what I naively thought would be a five or ten minute video it turned out to be a, a ten year project, <laughs> uh, which is still going. It, it, admittedly, it's it's. Um, it's it's not my major focus now with Cyphstash, but it's it's still a really important project and one that I'm very passionate about. So we released a, a 30 minute first version of the of the documentary or first episode of the documentary last year. And the first the first episode really explores kind of cultural norms, this idea of the the nerd stereotype and why why really there weren't enough there are still are not enough women in technology and it's and it's not 
seen as a women's domain. And it absolutely is, and anyone can work in technology, but there's a lot of societal and cultural pressures that have played out over a long period of time uh, that have led to that. So we explore that in, in quite a lot of depth in episode one. There are a whole bunch of topics that we want to explore, and I think this just is another example of where you know, just how naive that five-minute video was is we've now got two or three more episodes in the works. And we, we, we go into topics like um, education, the role our, our education system, high schooling and, and university has on supplying the tech industry with great candidates. We've got a, an episode on, um, you know, the role of uh, parenting and, um, you know, even just this idea that women tend to do most of the parenting and most of the home duties. and for men who want to be stay-at-home dads or, or take a bigger role in, in parenting, often that's even frowned upon. There are societal norms that we have to deal with. And I, we interviewed a, a, a man who had stepped back from his career to be a full-time stay-at-home dad with twin girls while his wife went off and, and, um, and, and you know, pursued her career. Very interesting conversation. We haven't got an episode yet on the role of AI, but I think that might be an interesting one, and and the gender bias or 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 racial bias that might be um, starting to develop inside the AI technology that we build. I mean, like I say, there are we could probably make a hundred episodes on this topic and still not do it justice. But it's it's a passion project. It's one that that I hope people will find valuable. Never going to make any money from it, but we do it because we want to share a good message. Amazing. So it sounds like. Cypher Stash um, is doing some really important work. And it sounds like Dan Draper himself is also doing um, really important work even outside of Cypher Stash. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> so for anybody who wants to kind of keep up um, with your work or find out more about um, either of these organizations, can you tell us how, how people can follow you? Where can they find you? How can they find out more about uh, the, the, the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So LinkedIn is my, my main social network. Um, so you can just look me up, Dan Draper on, on LinkedIn. Cypherstash, you can find us at cypherstash.com. That's C-I-P-H-E-R-S-T-A-S-H.com. And Debugging Diversity has a website as well. Uh, and that's just simply debuggingdiversity.com. Brilliant. Dan, thank you so much. This has been Really, really informative, um, surprising at times. And um, yeah, just a really great conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Glad to hear it. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more conversations about security and finance, make sure to follow On the Defense wherever you listen to podcasts or check out F-Shore, EFT Shore on LinkedIn.